0: Hey, Three Crosses family. AJ here, director of Life Groups and Discipleship. We are closing the book on 1 Peter chapter 3 by going over verses 13 through 22. Before we dive in, I want to say that we are nearing the end of our 1 Peter series and the podcast episodes. But if you want to see this back, we would love your feedback. We loved doing these podcasts for you guys. We would love to hear your input. And with that... Let's go deeper. Well, today's an exciting day. We are closing the book on First Peter chapter 3. We're going over verses 13 through 22. And boy, oh boy, is it going to be a great episode. We're here with Pastor Danny once again. Pastor Danny, welcome back to the hot seat. Thanks for having me well, let's dive in. We have a lot to talk about. If you're familiar with this text, you know what I'm talking about, but I'm going to start by reading verse 13. And just as normal, we're going to break this down section by section. It says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. This passage is just so strong because it flips a lot of preconceived notions on its head. It says, even if you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. This word blessed actually only appears two times in the letter of First Peter right here. And in chapter 4, verse 14, which says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I think this is a total callback to the Sermon on the Mount that says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's this upside down nature that you are blessed when you face persecution. And so far in 1 Peter, we've seen accusations, ignorant talk, evil, insults, malicious talk, and now in this context, threats. And so these are what these Christians are facing. My question is simple. How does this equation add up? How how can it be true that we are blessed when we experience this suffering?
1: I love that you brought up the Sermon on the Mount because I think if if anyone who's listening wants to wrestle with this concept of suffering and blessing coexisting, that's probably the first place to go because the Sermon on the Mount lays down the foundational theology from Jesus uh, about, the fact that not merely does brokenness in this world include blessedness, but almost Jesus is saying is that blessing comes through brokenness. This idea of, uh, he gives this idea of future blessing there, right? The hungry will be filled, but he also talks about current blessing that those who are, uh, persecuted because of righteousness, they have the kingdom of heaven. And as Peter says here, when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, the spirit and the glory of God rests upon you. And so I think Peter is drawing out not even merely the future blessing, but I think Peter is capitalizing on the current blessing that happens in moments of suffering. Now, In the last passage, Peter shared a a psalm, Psalm 34 with us, and a couple verses from that psalm. And the psalm talks a little bit about God's closeness to those who are suffering. And for folks who are familiar with that psalm, which maybe his readers would be, the next few verses talk about the blessing that comes from being in a moment of heartache. Right, Psalm 34 verse 18 is one that we share all the time with folks who are in times of grief or mourning. It says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And this psalm is one that if you've ever been in a season of grief or of heartache, you've probably clung to because of the promise of the Lord that when you are in a really hard time, God promises his presence with you in that moment. I think Peter is continuing to allude to that same idea that when you are persecuted for righteousness sake, part of the blessing is you will experience the closeness of the Lord in a way that you will never experience it outside of suffering.
0: And one of the practices we've been talking about is when we see a quote uh, thrown in by these New Testament authors, it's always good practice to go back and read where it's quoting from. And so here you have a quote from Isaiah 8, Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And uh, it's just the context is amazing where Judah is facing all these nations coming around them. And it's saying like, God is close. God is close to you. And so um, I want to move on to the next section that says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So, I want to clarify a couple things because I know... This passage is very familiar to people out there. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have, and it's actually bred one of the um, one discipline in the Christian church called apologetics, giving a reason for your faith, and so. Maybe in the American 21st century mind, we have this image of, you know, being at your family dinner or whatever and being prepared to give an answer and be the smartest person in the room and stump that atheistic claim or whatever. Or maybe we have a, a vision of debates that take place in front of a stage. Um, but what I'm struck by is how this text is surrounded by passages about suffering. And so I'm wondering if you could take this very common passage that talks about being prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. How does first Peter illuminate that with the context that it brings about suffering?
1: I'm glad that you drew that uh, apologetics parallel out because one of the things that has bugged me for a long time is not apologetics. Apologetics, there's a time and a place for it. And it's an amazing discipline but that when we read this verse, we almost always read it out of context and exclusively tag it to an apologetical framework where that, like you said, is not what it's all about. This is about giving an answer, not when people ask you, hey, prove to me the resurrection is true, but giving an answer when people say, how in the world do you still have hope? And I think part of it is there There are times in life that people ask those questions. I think I've got a friend right now whose wife is uh, in her late 40s, mid 40s, just had a stroke in the hospital. And he is clinging to the Lord as she's clinging to life and trying to recover and nurses, doctors, people come in the room and sometimes we'll ask him the question, man, how do you have such a hope in such a bleak moment as this? And in that moment, Peter would turn to my friend and say, hey, in those moments, God has prepared you for this moment to share the reason for the hope that you have because him uh, or my friend in that moment, like we talked about a moment ago, is so close to the Lord right now because he's clinging to God for dear life that it is not hard in that moment to testify. My hope is in the Lord and he will save me and he is close to the brokenhearted, right? And so in moments of suffering, there might be a remarkable moment to the world as they look upon you and see your suffering and they come and they ask you about it and yet as we look at first peter i'm convinced that he's not primarily even talking about those cases i think peter is talking about the cases when people are coming and asking you about why you have hope and they're the reason that you're suffering Right? This is not the doctor who's watching you suffer, although that could be a, a use of this verse. This is the person who is persecuting you and making you suffer, and you have to respond to them. And the reason I think that Peter is primarily talking about response to persecutors is because of what he says next. He says, give an answer or give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this, Peter says, with gentleness and respect, (laughs) right? My friend whose wife is in the hospital does not have to take a deep breath and be respectful to a nurse who asks him why he has hope. Uh, He can humbly speak to her. But if he was at the hands of someone or if I was at the hands of someone who is bringing suffering into my life, a boss who's coming, breathing down my neck every day, right? Or in a marriage that Peter's talked about where a husband is just such a jerk to his wife or in a place, a servant master context where a a master is just making a, a servant do this and do that and do this and do that and running them ragged. And then finally says, why do you keep on keeping on? there's a temptation in that moment for that suffering servant to turn and say, kind of crack their knuckles and be like, I'll tell you, I don't serve you, right? And come I serve the Lord and you are nothing, right? But he says, ah. this is the case Peter is talking about. A case when you are suffering and when someone who you may be tempted to rail against when they finally ask you why you're so happy, Peter says, okay, in that moment that God has ordained for you to share about your hope keep a clear conscience be able to walk out of that conversation and say you know what i even treated this persecutor with dignity and respect and so that those who malign you peter says will be ashamed of their slander right don't take this as a moment to invert the power dynamic and now they walked away and you're kind of ashamed at how much of a jerk you were to them but you're like at least i got to speak my piece he says no Have dignity, have respect, share about your hope in a way that as they hear you talk about Jesus, they become ashamed of the way they've been treating you.
0: And we've been talking all series about this uh, honor shame culture, and I'm fascinated by how it lands on being ashamed of their slander. And so it's almost inverting what they held valuable. And it concludes with this passage in verse 17 saying, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I want to pause there because way back in the early episodes of this series, and we hope that you've listened to all the episodes up to this point, but we talked about the existence of suffering and we talked about how it's one of the biggest hurdles for people. If if God is good, why is there suffering? And here it seems like there's a relationship between God's will and suffering, now, without going too much into this answer, because I think we still have more room to talk about suffering in the future, I want to pause here and zoom out of 1 Peter again and just highlight what you think people should be taking away about this concept of suffering so far. We, we are concluding chapter three now. We've seen three chapters of 1 Peter. What should people take away in terms of this concept of God using suffering?
1: I think one thing that we can take into this concept is a reminder of the context of these people. But sometimes when we think about suffering, we think about things like theodicy, right? Is God the author of evil? Is God the the orchestrator of human suffering? And the cases that we're talking about in this book, it doesn't seem like that question would arise Mm -hmm. because the suffering that people are experiencing is suffering at the hands of folks in a culture that they were saved in the midst of. Right? So if you are in a marriage, in a culture that's very male-dominated, like we've been talking about, and you come to Christ, you become a Christian, You're still in the same marriage you were in a week ago, but now you've changed. And as you start to exercise your faith, you start to experience suffering, right? And in that case, you might say, God, why are you allowing this suffering? But I would guess in that culture, in that context, the person would understand that, well, I'm suffering because I've given my life to Jesus and it's worth it. And so I think part of what Peter is Uh, trying to help us to understand uh, is something that I think it's, he's the one who says this later. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal you are experiencing as if something strange was happening to you, right? And I think what he's trying to guard against is people being like, what in the world is happening, right? Why am I suffering? Why is my boss so mean? Or why is my master coming after me this way? Or why is my husband so mad that I'm following Jesus? Uh, Listen, this is this is not crazy. This is not strange. This is what happens to people who start to follow Jesus in a culture that's hostile to him. Peter continues in that same passage to say, uh, we don't think it's strange when we experience this suffering because Christ suffered for us, And he reminds us that Jesus was one who experienced suffering because the systems of this world are not compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, part of it, probably we do have to come to God and say, why, why am I experiencing this? But I would guess in the times where uh, you're maybe you're in a workplace today where your boss hates the fact that you're a believer and tries to make you work on Sundays all the time and all these things you're probably not saying why am i suffering this way right you're probably saying god what do you want me to do with this right do you want me to quit do you want to stay here is there a way I can change this place and these are the questions that peter addresses with these people
0: the pattern that's emerging in 1st peter at least for me in my eyes is that he'll talk about these difficult concepts and then he'll always ground it on Christ as an example. And so in these next couple of passages, verses 18 to 22, uh, if you're familiar with them, you're like starting to say, oh, this should be interesting. But uh, he brings it back to Christ and um, just in an interesting uh, manner. So we're going to break it down. I want to read it all the way through and then revisit uh, these verses, uh, breaking it down section by section. So it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And there's a lot there. So what I want to do is revisit just to start out with verses 18 and 19 and ask a couple of basic questions, trying to keep this passage as simple and um, clear as possible. So it begins by saying Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. And so let's stop there and unpack that. The first basic question that I have is where exactly do you think Jesus is going in this passage? And I think it's also tied to who the imprisoned spirits are and when this all happened. But let's start with the where question. Where exactly do you think Jesus went?
1: I want to start by saying If you read the commentaries on this passage, almost every commentary will say, this might be the most difficult (laughs) passage to interpret in the entire New Testament. And the reason for that is because most passages that are a little bit confusing in our modern day understanding... We can jump into a couple other passages and kind of see how other authors talk about the same concept and overlap them, right? Even if it's something where James talks about righteousness, Paul talks about righteousness, they use the word slightly differently. We look at literature outside of the Gospels and outside of the Epistles, and we see on how to understand it. And so we kind of use these these filters of, okay, what does Scripture say about this? What do outside writings say about this? How is this term used in culture in that day? And then we can make a pretty good idea of what's going on, right? And most of the time with much certainty. Okay, this is the interpretation of this passage. This passage is one where you kind of read it and every author and commentator who writes or reads or studies on this says, what in the world is Peter alluding to here? <laughs> right? Because, um, and again, this is not new for Peter. We had the same conversation two weeks ago about Sarah, right? And we're reading about Abraham and Sarah and we're thinking, what is he talking about? Right? And then we read Genesis and we're like, oh, this is probably what he's alluding to is Sarah, this founding woman of the Jewish faith and blah, blah, blah. Go back and listen to that podcast. So this is not new to Peter. He likes to bring in these Old Testament ideas like Noah and all these different things. Uh, But this one, when we go back to the Old Testament or read through the New Testament, we're thinking, what in the world is happening here, right? Because on one hand, at face value, this is very simple. Peter walks through the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, right? So where was he going? Well, he went into the grave. He arose from the grave, right? And then he went into the heavens 40 days later, right? (laughs) And yet... Peter starts talking about, oh, when he descended, he preached to these captives, right? And so there's some some different ways we can wrestle with that. Um, there's three major views on this. Uh, and Two of these three views are more ancient views. One view is a more modern-day view, and I'll tell you why in a second. But the, the majority view for a lot of church history, the earliest view, uh, was the view that after Christ died on the cross, he was put in the tomb, and then he descended into hell, and he proclaimed the gospel to the captives there proclaimed not necessarily in terms of you guys should be saved, but maybe proclaimed it in the sense of like, death has been beaten. I'm getting out of here. You're not, who knows, right? But there's this concept that he descended into Hades, right? And so if you uh, grew up in a a background where you memorize the creeds, you may have memorized one of the creeds that talks about that Jesus died, was buried, descended into hell and came back. Um, And so it can be easy to be like, oh, well, that's the view, right? Because he descended into hell. The problem is, those creeds came out after this interpretation of this passage came out. And those creeds completely rely on this passage for the view that Jesus descended into hell and Throughout the rest of scriptures, we don't see the idea of Christ's descent, meaning into Hades. In fact, we think of Paul who says, what does he he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. It talks about his descent onto earth, right? Or this descent into the grave, right? Without this passage, you would think that Jesus descended into the grave and then rose from the grave, not that he went to hell. A few years, few hundred years later, people started getting a little bit nervous about this descendant into Hades view of this passage because it kind of felt like if he did that, maybe he was preaching the gospel to people who died and giving them a chance to repent, which we know from our theology doesn't happen. And so it got a little problematic because people were building a theology of a second chance at heaven based on the fact that Jesus can preach to you even while you're in hell. And so a new view became to emerge that said, okay, this is kind of a reformation view. uh, 16th century came out and said, no, no, no. When he descended in when he descended and preached to the captives, this was not after he died. The timeline is, let's go back in time a few thousand years. This is the Holy Spirit preaching the gospel to the folks in Noah's day. And so there's this view that this is not Jesus in a linear timeline descending into hell. Jesus just died and was buried. But really the proclamation that's talked about in this passage is something that happened thousands of years ago, right? That kind of solved the second chance theology thing. But when you read the passage, you think, I don't know about this because it seems like there's a pretty linear timeline of he died, he buried, he he was buried, he descended, he raised, he ascended. It seems like it all happened over the course of a weekend and then 40 days later. So then flash forward again uh, several hundred years and some new literature came out um, or was discovered archaeologically – that gave people a little bit of a glimpse into what Peter might've been talking about. And and the two pieces of knowledge that came out, uh, one was a book called Enoch, uh, that other gospel writers refer to the book of Enoch. This seemed to be a, a book that was understood in the Jewish community in the first few centuries. And Enoch actually talks a little bit about angelic beings that are placed in captivity strangely enough, in the days of Noah, right? And so it's like, okay, well, actually, maybe Peter's referring to Enoch, right? There's some folks who say he's not because he never says the word Enoch. He doesn't refer to anything else about Enoch here. The other piece of information that came out was that uh, in Asia Minor, where these letters were being circulated, there was a bit of a fascination with the Noah story. Uh, there was a, a town in that region that had the Greek, I think, word for ark in the name of the town. So people decided that this was the place where Noah's ark landed. And so they started geeking out on the Noah story. Noah was on their coins, right? And they were so excited about Noah. So people say, well, well, Peter is using a Noah analogy. He's borrowing from Enoch uh, imagery to give this picture of these captives that were preached to in the days of Noah, after Jesus descended in hell, all these different kinds of things. The bottom line is I can't tell you, right? (laughs) Uh, But what we do know is clear in this passage is the gospel, is that Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and ascended. There's this idea of proclamation. And then there's this link that Peter's trying to make through the Noah story, that when we were saved from our sin, using this Noah story as an analogy, the same thing happened to us, that we were washed clean from our sins, we emerged from the waters of baptism, resurrected unto new life, and now we stepped out of those waters, living life for good, for good works, which meets the theme of 1 Peter. So this is one where theologians can geek out on all the the details and you can make your decision on what you wanna believe, but at the same time, don't miss the forest for the trees, where Peter's trying to go with this is saying that in the same way that Jesus suffered, he died, He raised again, he was glorified and he is ascended into heaven. So also we in our lives, we will suffer and yet we will emerge from suffering victorious. And this is a good that we will do and we will raise unto good works in the kingdom. And also like Psalm 34 reminds us as God rescues us, even in this life from time Mm -hmm.
0: to time, a couple of things to respond there Um, for clarification. Continuing for from verse 19 to 20, those imprisoned spirits, it says, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently. And then it goes, in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So there's, again, this fascination with Noah. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through the water. A follow-up question that um, I think people wrestle with as well, theologians, um, verse 21. This water, this, this scene of Noah... Uh, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we talked a little bit about this in the celebrate new life episode with uh, Max, and this was a reference um, that was used to say that there's something salvific or uh, a salvation is happening in the waters of baptism because people stop at it saves you or, uh, this now saves you also. And they're like, okay, maybe there's something with baptism that saves you. So I'm wondering what is this image of baptism and you may have alluded to it, but I wonder if you could go deeper into this imagery of baptism through this Noah account.
1: Yeah. Again, we don't know why, uh, (laughs) <laughs> Peter is talking about knowing the same way we don't know exactly why he was talking about Sarah um, but we see th- this correlation I think for me the, the easiest way that I can uh, dissuade people from believing that he's talking about a salvation coming through baptism is where he goes with it, right? That idea, not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a clear conscience towards God. Um, So kind of almost like he's saying, hey, I'm not saying that like the act of baptism is saving you, right? It's not the thing that washes your dirt away, the physical act of baptism that saves you. But it's this idea that he's giving us this symbol through the Noah imagery, through the baptism imagery, through the Jesus life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, glorification imagery. He's giving us this parallel imagery of how salvation works that we die to our sins, we die to ourself, we emerge unto new life. Some people believe that 1 Peter was written as a, kind of a handbook or a primer to give to folks who are being baptized. And so they say, the reason he's talking about baptism here is it's a baptism pamphlet, All right? Maybe that's true, maybe it's not true. It's also very possible that he's talking about Noah and he's like, oh my gosh, that really connects with baptism. And he wrote about it, right? Um, Because sometimes that happens, right? As we as humans are talking about our faith and how it works, we're seeing Christ in the story of the gospel in all of the scriptures. Um, So again, we don't know why he did what he did, but what we do know that he's doing is he's linking this concept of the gospel throughout the scriptures in Jesus, in us, and connected to this concept of suffering where he says that we suffer and then we will experience redemption from that suffering into glorification into God's rule into the spirit being close to us and even sometimes into salvation and safety in this life but we know for sure salvation into the next.
0: I think it's very helpful to take a step back like you said don't miss the forest for the trees because when we zoom out of this specific section we see the rhythm of Christ's suffering life, the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus. And then we see the resurrection back to life. Now, unfortunately, it feels like a lot of Christians stop the story at that point. And I think it's fascinating that Peter ends at verse 22, which says, Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. And it's fascinating that this is such a complex text, but he ends there. And so I'm wondering two questions. Number one, what would have this meant to the audience, to First Peter, that was going through all of this cultural suffering? And then secondly, it really, for me personally, this is a personal anecdote now, it wasn't until I stepped into the halls of seminary that my paradigm Uh, of this life, death, resurrection of Christ that gets so often repeated in the church. It wasn't until I started looking at the scriptures really closely and in an academic setting that it turned into life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so I'm wondering, how does our paradigm and thinking shift when we have the ascension absent in our minds in the gospel message?
1: in terms of Peter's audience, I think one thing, if, if Peter is alluding to the book of Enoch, and he is talking about this kind of apocryphal story about uh, angelic beings who uh, entered into relations with human beings and created sin and created all this crazy stuff in the world in Genesis chapter six, and then they're bound in Tartarus or wherever it was in the bowels of hell until Jesus came and proclaimed them and the final judgment, they're going to be judged, Right then this passage you just read is one that puts a bow on that whole thing where now we have a picture of Jesus, the ruling and reigning Jesus with all angelic beings uh, submissive to him. And Mm -hmm. so that's Jesus who has victory, not only over sin, not, only over death, not only over every human being who has ever lived, but over all the angels and principalities and demons and Satan himself. Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the king of the heavenly host, right? So it's a worshipful moment, uh, which is something the ascension gives us. But also I think one thing that the uh, ascension gives us in terms of theology is a reminder that what Peter is trying to teach his people here is that while we live life on this earth today, Jesus is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the throne of God. N.T. Right. Wright does a really good job helping us understand the ascension. I think it's in Simply Jesus, which is the most uh, accessible book that we can read to help us understand the ascension. Uh, and he talks about what people expected that Jesus would do, right? We know that uh, the Jewish folks thought that Jesus was going to uh, ascend the t- the steps of the temple, sit down at the throne there and begin to rule and take over Rome from there, right? Other folks might have believed that Jesus was gonna assemble a bunch of armies and go take over Rome as a military leader, right? And N.T. Wright says, no, Jesus. Battle was a spiritual battle. His enemy uh, was sin and death. He couldn't ascend the steps of the temple and sit on the throne yet because he had not yet conquered the enemy. And the enemy was not the Jewish people, the enemy was not Rome, the enemy was Satan and sin and death itself. And so N.T. Wright shows us that in the gospel, jesus goes up to the temple and doesn't sit down and rule he turns over the temple the tables in the temple then they turn on him he's crucified he dives into the the pits of hell into death itself he fights with death he fights with satan he emerges victorious he comes out of the grave alive and after jesus has vanquished the enemy he comes out of the tomb with the head of death in his hand. He now is qualified to ascend the steps of the temple into his heavenly throne. But Jesus does not ascend the steps of the temple in Jerusalem, in fact, the temple of jerusalem is destroyed a few years later instead jesus ascends the steps of the heavenly temple right he ascends into heaven right don't picture jesus floating off into space like he's an alien right picture jesus walking up an invisible staircase until he disappears into another dimension and then jesus sits down in his heavenly throne at the right hand of the throne at the right hand of the throne of god and begins to rule and reign from that place so read the book of acts through this lens it's fascinating because the moment jesus ascends all heaven starts breaking loose on planet earth, right? From his heavenly throne, Jesus is converting thousands at Pentecost. From his heavenly throne, Jesus is giving words to Peter to share the gospel. From his heavenly throne, Jesus is opening prison doors and releasing captives. From his heavenly throne, he's answering prayers. From his heavenly throne, he's controlling the elements and forming shipwrecks and putting ships onto islands. From his throne, he's causing a snake to bite the hand of Paul. From his heavenly throne, Jesus, almost like a divine puppet master, is controlling every aspect of planet earth. And us, as we give our lives to him and the spirit comes into our lives, we are grafted into this new dimensional reality where Jesus from his throne controls not only our lives, but controls our circumstances, controls our fate, controls our interactions with others and uses us in that place, right? So for our people who are suffering and marginalized without hope, without God, it feels like sometimes in this world, Peter is saying, no, 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 no. No matter where you are in society, no matter how much you are suffering, your king is on his throne And he is not merely risen, but he is reigning. Mm. And he is working with you and in you and through you and around you. And even when you are in a place where you are absolutely powerless, your King Jesus, through the spirit in you, can change the world around you. Your circumstances, your captors, your husband, your onlookers to your suffering, he can change all of them through his powerful presence in you because he rules and reigns over all the earth In the angelic being, he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he reigns supreme.
0: Amen. I think it's uh, amazing that this whole section began with this concept of submission to different earthly creatures, and it ends with God, Jesus, at the right hand of the Father with angels, authorities, powers in submission to him. And so this ascension concept is so important and, you know, My prayer is that people begin to see um, that it's the life, the death, the resurrection, and the story didn't end there. He ascended, and the story continues today, and we as Christians are grafted into that, and it's a beautiful thing. And so, Pastor Danny, thank you for illuminating this difficult passage. I know we're still probably going to wrestle with it as the, the time goes on. But uh, just zooming out and seeing the beauty of the gospel and that Jesus is the risen Savior and he is alive today and still working at Three Crosses Church. And so, uh, Pastor Danny, thank you for leading us in that.